0: The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
2: Experiences like this that that led General Pete Schoemaker to compare JSOC during this period to to a brand new Ferrari that was being kept in the garage out of concern that if it was taken out to, to race, the fender might get dented.
0: Joint Special Operations Command is set up to be the United States' ultimate problem solver, from rescuing hostages to capturing bad guys. Delta Force and SEAL Team 6 are part of it, but not the whole story. This week on War College, we get an inside view of the secretive organization.
1: You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason
0: Fields. I'm Jason Fields, Reuters opinion editor. And I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. Today, we're talking with veteran war reporter Sean Naylor. He began his career writing for Army Times. He's written several books and is a contributing editor at Foreign Policy. His new book is Relentless Strike, The Secret History of Joint Special Operations Command. A recent review of the book goes so far as to accuse Sean of exposing valuable secrets that should have remained hidden. For a journalist, that's kind of a rave. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Uh, Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. So could you just start off
0: by simply telling us what uh, the Joint Special Operations Command is?
2: Joint Special Operations Command, or JSOC, as it's uh, more commonly known, is the command that, that runs the United States' most sensitive special operations missions. Um, examples include the missions that captured Saddam Hussein, rescued Captain Phillips from pirates off of Somalia, and uh, killed Osama bin Laden. But but as, as I explain in the book, those those events... Uh, The ones that come to the public's attention, they are just the tip of the JSOC iceberg that has been created over the last uh, 30 years.
1: Take us through a little bit of that beginning history, Sean. Um, When did the Pentagon create JSOC and why did it create JSOC?
2: The Pentagon created JSOC in, in late 1980 in response to the failed mission to rescue the U.S. hostages in Iran. You know, that that mission was conducted by an ad hoc task force comprised of units unused to working together uh, with a similarly ad hoc headquarters running the show. And its failure was a huge blow to American prestige. And so to minimize the the risks of a a repeat, uh, the Pentagon decided it needed a permanent counter-terrorist joint task force to run such missions from then on. and and it established JSOC as that force. Which
1: special mission units are we talking about that JSOC controls?
2: The two best-known special mission units under JSOC's control are the Army's Delta Force, which was established in in the late 1970s, a couple of years before JSOC, and the Navy's SEAL Team 6, which was created almost simultaneously with JSOC. Now, Now, both of these units focus primarily on direct action, that is, missions that involve capturing or killing enemies and or rescuing hostages. But but as I detail in Relentless Strike, over the years their, their role as intelligence gatherers has also grown, and each of those units now has a squadron dedicated to low visibility missions and and intelligence gathering. But JSOC includes uh, several other special mission units uh, Uh, in addition to those two very well-known ones. The other ones include the Air Force's uh, 24th Special Tactics Squadron, which coordinates airstrikes and provides pararescue medical personnel. Uh, Another Air Force unit that conducts what is called Covered Air, basically uh, an undercover unit with civilian-style aircraft. And perhaps the most interesting of all, a unit that's gone by various names over the years Including uh, since uh, two thousand and three, uh, Task Force Orange, as a as a nickname, uh, and that's an army unit that conducts human and signals intelligence gathering. And uh, you know, I have a chapter, you know, for instance, in my book dedicated uh, to some of the uh, very daring undercover work that uh, that Task Force Orange operatives did in in Syria at the height of the Iraq War. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what they did? They infiltrated. Uh, Syria, I believe, prior to the onset of hostilities with, with, the, uh, with Iraq, as part of a plan to try to uh, get operatives in as many countries around Iraq as, as possible. Once the fight in Iraq became uh, a fight against Al-Qaeda in Iraq, that program of infiltrating uh, U.S. operatives into, JSOC operatives into, uh, into Syria was used to conduct espionage against the foreign fighters that were flowing through uh, Syria and swelling the ranks of Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's Al-Qaeda in Iraq organization. So, I mean, some of the stories I relate in in my book, you know, include, uh, you know, actually breaking into Al-Qaeda foreign fighter safe houses in Syria with lockpick kits and copying all the data there and, you know, really old-school espionage stuff with disguises and secret recording devices on their persons and and so forth and so on.
1: Stuff that sounds like a Mission Impossible movie,
2: almost. Uh, Yes, maybe, probably with fewer explosions.
0: (laughs) At least if things were going right. Um, So can I just ask, I I know it's going backwards a little bit, but um, JSOC... And uh, the Special Operations Command, because there is a separate Special Operations Command, is that right?
2: There, there is a, a U.S. Special Operations Command, but it did not come into existence until about 1987. Um, so when when JSOC was created, there, there was no four-star headquarters that uh, that you know had oversight of all U.S. Special Operations forces way that there, is, uh, that there is now with. US Special Operations Command
0: okay so uh, so special oper- so which actually is in control then
2: well so Joint Special Operations Command um, is the command that is sometimes referred to as the National Mission Force and uh, when the US government uh, wants something accomplished in a particular part of the world that it want, you know it, it will give that mission if if suitable to uh, to jsoc us special operations command for most of its existence was a sort of a what's a, what's called a title 10 headquarters um, which means that it was in charge of sort of training and equipping uh, forces but it it's it wasn't an operational headquarters once once a jsoc force was sent to the middle east for instance it would come under US Central Command. SOCOM is the administrative headquarters for JSOC, um, but it's not, uh, it's not the one that's running the missions.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare
2: provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Okay, all right. Thanks. That that, that helps a lot actually. Um so during the uh, first 20 years that it's been around, um how often do they get to run missions? I mean, how often do these missions actually take place?
2: JSOC ran quite a few missions, or or conducted quite a few missions in its first 20 years, but they weren't the sort of missions uh, for which JSOC was originally conceived. While JSOC personnel advised other countries, special operations forces, uh, you you know, who were conducting hostage rescues in places like Sudan, Thailand and even Curacao, the closest JSOC got to doing its own missions of that type was in 1985, when the command twice deployed uh, task forces to the Mediterranean, prepared to rescue the hostages on TWA flight 847, which had been hijacked by Shia terrorists and eventually flown to Beirut as well as the Achille Loro, which was a cruise liner hijacked by Palestinian terrorists and sailed around the eastern Mediterranean. But on each occasion, the the White House never gave the green light for action. You know, and it was experiences like this that that led General Pete Schoemaker, who commanded JSOC in the mid 1990s, to compare JSOC during this period to to a brand new Ferrari that was being kept in the garage out of concern that if it was taken out to, to race, the fender might get dented. That's the story of why JSOC didn't didn't conduct the sort of missions that it uh, that that it was originally created to conduct. The sort of the classic hostage rescue missions that uh, you know that that seemed to be sort of all the rage in the, in the late 70s. Um, but they did conduct quite a few real-world missions to include uh, spearheading. The invasions of both Grenada in 1983 and Panama in 1989, several manhunting hunting operations, uh, including uh, the hunt for Pablo Escobar, in which they worked, you know, very closely with Colombian, uh, you know, Pablo Escobar being a Colombian cocaine kingpin in the early 1990s, and and they worked very closely with uh, with uh, Colombian security forces there. Um, the hunt. Uh, unsuccessful hunt at the time for uh, Mohammed Farah Aidid, the uh, Somali warlord, um, which which ended in the uh, October 1993 Battle of Mogadishu memorialized in, in the book and, and the movie Black Hawk Down, as well as in the aftermath of the Dayton peace accords in the mid-90s, uh, JSOC was given the mission of hunting down Balkan war criminals uh, to be put on trial uh, at the Hague and and they
0: were actually very successful with that if if i uh, understand right
2: yes 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 they were um there were, there were a, quite a number of uh, successful snatches and, and or, in 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 one or two cases kills in that period in in the balkans and they involved some um sort of some fairly out of the box methods as well uh, including you know, in, in at least one case, I believe a catapult net that was fired at a moving car to to ensnare it and immobilize it, so that uh, operators could then emerge from the hedgerows and smash the windows in and and drag their target out. Um, and <laughs> do they have a lot of things like that? I mean, do they? <laughs> I'm, uh, that
0: does sound like something I've never heard of before.
2: Yeah, they they probably had a, a few. I mean, I know that they were experimenting with ways to remotely. Uh, Sort of interfere with with cars by by that period, um, so uh, you know I, I, one suspects that for all the sort of juicy detail that that's in my book, I would imagine that the, the stuff that uh, these days might be the most cutting edge is, is you know is probably retained in just a few uh, a few mines in, uh, at, at Fort Bragg and uh, Damneck, Virginia.
1: All right, so they go through these first kind of 20 years, and then September 11th happens. Um, what kind of position was JSOC in at that time, and then how were they used in the first few months after September 11th?
2: On September the 11th, 2001, JSOC was actually about to start one of what had become the, uh, its sort of massive quarterly exercises, uh, which were called Joint Readiness Exercises, or JRXs. And, and this one had a JSOC task force headquartered at a military airfield in Teysar, Hungary, with small elements scattered uh, all across Europe. And the, the focus of the exercise, as with most such JSOC exercises by then, was, a, was counter-proliferation. JSOC had, in the 1980s, been handed the mission for uh, of, of counter-proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Um, and this, this exercise was sort of a, a sort of a loose nuke exercise. But the exercise also exemplified what, what many insiders felt had become uh, a problem, uh, which was that JSOC had, had become wedded to this operational template in which a big headquarters and many hundreds of personnel had to be airlifted on dozens of transport aircraft to conduct any mission that JSOC was given. Um, and in the critics' eyes, this, this robbed JSOC of its ability to respond nimbly, uh, let alone clandestinely. Right, yeah, not very stealthy if it takes
0: uh, <laughs> it takes a whole squadron to get you there.
2: If you have to fly C5 after C5 or C17 after C17, big transport aircraft anywhere, um, it's very difficult to keep that secret uh, from the well, locals. Someone's
0: going to notice. Yeah. So-
2: someone's really going to notice. The, the initial plans on on how to use JSOC in in, the, in Afghanistan in the immediate wake of 9/11 sort of seemed to confirm the the sort of critics' view that JSOC had become this sort of unwieldy, top-heavy organization. You know, the JSOC commander at the time, Major General Del Daly, wanted to use JSOC to make a statement rather than to sort of to hunt down and, and kill the most senior Al Qaeda and Taliban figures. Although it should be said that he was probably coming under some pressure from from his military and civilian chain of uh, command uh, in in this regard. Uh, So JSOC actually spent a number of weeks planning a raid on a fertilizer plant in northern Afghanistan that some sort of very thin, dubious intelligence reports uh, had suggested might be a, a chemical or biological weapons facility you know and the the idea was that delta force were going to uh, assault this this facility but when the when the lead delta force planner in in jsoc's planning team proposed a uh, a very stealthy raid daily the jsoc commander got got angry and indicated that you know what he actually wanted was a big televised production now in the end that the, the raid didn't happen as as jsoc found out that it could It was initially looking at targets in northern Afghanistan because it thought it was going to have to fly out of uh, Central Asia into Afghanistan um, to do the raids. But uh, once it found that it could base itself on the island of Masira off of Oman and use an aircraft carrier... Uh, to launch raids into the Taliban's heartland in southern Afghanistan, uh, the targets in northern Afghanistan just faded in importance, which was probably just as well because the fertilizer factory turned out later to be just that.
0: I guess we saved uh, ourselves a little bit of embarrassment there. Is uh, Joint Special Operations Command likely to be participating in a fight against uh, Islamic State? If so, Uh, what kind of roles would you think it would have?
2: Yes, uh, it it already is participating in in that fight and has been actually for some time. JSOC uh, has a task force operating out of uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, um, uh, basically working with the CIA to target uh, Islamic State leadership. Um, so, when you hear about a drone strike taking out a senior Islamic State figure, there's a good chance that a JSOC targeting folder was, uh, you know, at the root of, of, of that, and JSOC has its own, has its own drones that are, that are conducting those, uh, those missions. Um, JSOC has also been involved in uh, multiple raids into Islamic uh, State-held territory, including the July 2014 raid um, that uh, just missed James Foley and the other US and the other US and as I as I detail in my book that in fact that that raid was notable in part because uh, JSOC used the uh, same model roughly of of stealth uh, Black Hawk helicopter that it used in the uh, in the raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad, you know one of which uh, uh, famously uh, crash landed uh, at the compound.
0: Right, in which they then uh, at least made an effort to destroy so that the secrets wouldn't uh, be av- made available to the Pakistanis. Right,
2: that's right. But um, unfortunately, the, the I, whatever they used, probably thermite grenades, to destroy the airframe left the uh, left the tail uh, boom intact.
0: So there's one thing that you mentioned. Really early on, when we we're talking about the various constituents uh, that fit under JSOC, I'm just really curious about the stealth aircraft. Um, it, it, you said it was part of the Air Force, and uh, do they? How do they operate? I mean, do they look like commercial liners, or?
2: Yeah, and I just want to be clear on the on the on the terminology. So the stealth helicopters that I was talking about are are the ones with stealth stealthy characteristics, but they're military helicopters. Sort of like a stealth fighter, same same idea. The covered aircraft, I believe, uh, is what you're referring to. The air force and and in fact the army in Delta Force both have uh, covered aircraft capabilities. Task Force Orange also has covered aircraft. So you've got a minimum of three uh, sets of of aircraft uh, as I'm as I'm counting. Uh, The Air Force uh, unit includes larger aircraft that can sort of fly a force somewhere, but it looks like it's just another uh, sort of regular uh, civilian uh, sort of cargo plane. Delta Force uh, unit, which is Delta's E-Squadron or Echo Squadron, um, is is, uh, mostly helicopters, and they do a variety of tasks, but mostly uh, they move uh, folks from A to B undercover, um or they can be weaponized in in a in a foreign country and uh and you know, so you fly in a civilian helicopter, uh basically add weapons to it at a remote airfield somewhere in, you know, Central America or or somewhere else, and then uh and then you've got a uh an an attack helicopter. And then Task Force Orange, the 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 sort of intelligence uh, unit, uses a fleet of aircraft uh, to uh, carry its uh, its signals intelligence gear. And so, uh, you know, they, they can also be, be made to appear quite, quite benign.
0: Back to your book, while you were doing the research for it, what was the most surprising thing you discovered? Or have you been involved in this, uh, reporting on this for such a long time that none of it was particularly surprising
2: to you? No, there were, a few, there, there were a few things that, that, I, that I was sort of su- surprised at or, or, or sort of really impressed by. One, one was the, the missions that we've already talked about into Syria, the undercover espionage missions. And another was, this is actually, I believe, a CIA accomplishment, um, but uh, uh, JSOC and CIA were both involved in, in the hunt for uh, uh, al Alaki, the um, Yemeni-American Preacher who was killed, who was killed, who was part of Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and he was killed I think he was in the He was the publisher
0: of Inspire as well. Yeah, which is an uh, English language publication intended to uh, lure uh, Westerners to join uh, the Jihad, I think.
2: And, and I was told by, by somebody in, in, involved in, in, uh, in that that uh, uh, the CIA actually had managed to um, install a camera in the car that alaki was riding in that was transmitting moving pictures in real time you know sort of basically installed in the dashboard or something looking looking backwards and was able to transmit pictures in real time that that proved that alaki was actually riding in the vehicle that allowed the cia i believe at that time to uh, to pull the trigger on the drone as as it were and, and kill him um i think there was the, also the fact that Uh, SEAL Team 6 for years trained for and kept a unit on standby in Afghanistan for a mission to conduct a freefall parachute jump into the Pakistani tribal areas if actionable intelligence on bin Laden's whereabouts uh, was ever obtained. Um, So that was the actual plan A for a long time uh, was...
1: Like, like, a, like a halo jump?
2: Yeah, it would have been probably a hey-ho jump. So high altitude, high opening. So in other words, you jump out of the, you jump out of the plane at you know maybe 25,000 feet, maybe just a plane flying along the Afghanistan side of the border, and then you use your uh, sort of free-fall parachute to steer yourself to a very, pre- you know, riding on the wind, as it were, to a very precise location, and you, you know, SEAL Team 6, trained for this so often that they could put, you know, uh, dozens of, dozens of operators down at the same point, maybe 20 or 30 kilometers uh, from where they jumped out of the, uh, jumped out of the plane.
0: Impressive as that is, it also proves out that we really had no idea where Bin Laden was.
2: That's correct, although he wasn't always uh, in Abbottabad, obviously. Even when he was detected in Abbottabad, and the, the planning was underway for the mission that became Operation Neptune's Spear, a mission to, to kill him in Abbottabad, some in, in Team 6 felt more comfortable doing the freefall mission to get him, even though it would probably have required flying some distance into Pakistan before the operators jumped out of the plane, than they were with the, with the stealth helicopter uh, approach, which was what uh, JSOC uh, Commander Bill McRaven eventually opted for.
0: There's one aspect of your book that I'm kind of interested in. I hadn't really thought about it too much until I read a review in Foreign Policy, which you actually write for, right?
2: Um, yes, yeah, I'm a contributing editor at Foreign Policy, yes. And, and previously was a staff, a staff writer there.
0: The headline on the piece uh, was, uh, Naylor's book is very good, but I've got some issues with the people who blabbed. And um, I'm sure you, uh, uh, I'm sure you remember the article. Uh, and uh, it just it brings up uh, the point of the article seems to be not just to praise your book, but uh, to say that you know, now all of the good tricks are,, you know, out of the bag, and uh, you know, this will actually compromise the uh, effectiveness of JSOC. Um, and I wondered if that was something, uh, whether or not it's true. I wonder if that was something that at all concerned you while you were doing the work on the book.
2: It it, it certainly did. Um, you know, I I obviously had to trust my my sources in many cases, who are, if anything, far more invested in in keeping information that would be of real value to uh, an enemy of the United States secret. Um, and especially you know because they'd grown up in 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 uh in jsOC and in the special mission units, and uh you know i I sort of had to trust that if uh, if uh, somebody with with many years of experience is telling me something that he or she uh, has has come to the conclusion that this is not actually dangerous. bear in mind that my book covers thirty Plus years of history, thirty-four years of history. So much of the action and many of the techniques that are being described are years old. Just because something was cutting edge in two thousand and five or two thousand and eight, doesn't mean it's cutting edge in, in late twenty fifteen. So I mean that would be one, one obvious uh, uh, point that I that I would make. And I actually kept a number of names, for instance, out of the book at at people's request. Um, so I. You know, I think that the JSOC story is very important. Um, it's been the, the US military's main effort in the war on terror. And, and sort of keeping it hidden from the US public would be like uh, keeping secret the, the accomplishments of, of Patton's Third Army in Europe during World War II. You know, and, and the American people funded JSOC at, at considerable, albeit classified ex, expense. You know, they've filled it with their sons and daughters, and it is waging war in their name. And others disagree, and I respect their views, but I, I think the American public has has every right to know the history of this command and, and its extraordinary people.
0: Well, thank you very much. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Um, so, Sean Naylor, uh, it's uh, terrific to speak with you today. We really appreciate your time. And uh, just also, uh, I figure it can't hurt to mention the name of your book again. Uh, it's also going to be posted uh, along with uh, links to everything else um relentless strike the secret history of joint special operations command and uh, is that available now
2: oh yes it's yes it is available it's very good
0: okay so and uh then uh, last but not least i just uh want to beg our listeners to uh if you like this please uh, subscribe to the podcast and comments uh on itunes or soundcloud are very much appreciated uh your ratings uh for good or for ill, uh, can help decide (laughs) the uh, fate of this podcast. So, once again, thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you, Sean.
1: next time on War College. It's tempting to think that anything that moved us along and got us closer to our current reality is progress, but we have nothing to compare
0: it to. We took the fork in the road, and and anything that got us to that fork in the road is positive, but what if the fork in the road that we're on isn't as good as the fork in the road we could have been on?